Hello everyone, and welcome to Kanan Rin's Sound of Play 155. Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 155 is our good friend from Canarance, Joshua Garrity. Hello there. In our Discord, uh, in the... No, that's not it. In the... Uh, what is the Slack. That's the program that we yeah, use yeah, yeah. among the team. We're off to a really strong start today. Yeah, in our Slack that we use to communicate among the Canarance team... I noticed that there is at least two or three of us that are going through Hollow Knight right now. Uh, mm. One of the big kind of indie Metroidvania revival platformery games um, met with acclaim over the past couple of years. And uh, what you introduced us 
today, uh, what you introduced to us today uh, with the first track is a song coming from another game of similar ilk, uh, coming from that same kind of Metroidvania style, uh, but very uh, more directly referencing the games from which it spawned. Why don't you introduce us to this first song? Yes, um, so this this first track is from Axiom Verge. Um, the track is called The Dream, um, and it was composed by Thomas Hap, who pretty much did everything on uh, Axiom Verge. I picked this one because I, I'd recently uh, played Axiom Verge. I, I played Axiom Verge and Hollow Knight back-to-back, so I was clearly on a bit of a Metroidvania um, interest mm. wave, or whatever you want to call it. And um, yeah, I think you're right. Like the, the Hollow Knight um, definitely owes a lot um, more to Symphony of the Night than uh, maybe Super Metroid, but it, mm-hmm. it's kind of drawing influence all over the place. There's a bit of Ducktales in there. There's a bit of uh, Dark Souls in there. Uh, it's its influences are a bit more disparate, so it ends up kind of having a more unique identity. Whereas Axiom Verge is. It's Super Metroid, like uh, a very, very good homage to Super Metroid. And I think it's one of the more um, successful examples of a game aping um, Super Metroid that I've seen. But it's it's very much wearing, um, you know, its influences on its sleeve um, with without any shame whatsoever. I picked this track in particular. So the, the track's called The Dream, and it, it plays during basically a flashback slash dream sequence that the main character has. Um, but it, it's it's kind of, it's basically riffing on the, the main theme of Axiom Verge as well. So it's it's less about the, the moment in particular that this track is associated with and more me just kind of liking this particular uh, take on the main theme of um, Axiom Verge is a bit slower um, uh, and a bit more atmospheric than the uh, the original take on this theme. Um, and I feel like it, it manages to capture um, some of the the scariness that Super Metroid has. Like the, 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 the music in Metroid is uh, in Super Metroid is much more minimalist than Axiom Verge. Axiom Verge's soundtrack is much more in the forefront but i think the soundtrack all the same um manages to capture the kind of threatening alien tone of super metroid and i feel like this track more than anything kind of captures that feeling of danger while also evoking the kind of chiptune uh music of the of the era that it's influenced by there's a few notes that play towards the end of this track that definitely put me in the mind of another piece of music that I can't place, and it kind of drives me crazy now that I've heard it. <laughs> but uh, I guess if any of the listeners know what I'm talking about, they can write in because it's just going to bug me, I think, for a while. Uh, I'll try to put it out of my mind. So do you prefer when games do kind of develop their own identity, or are you okay with games that kind of latch on to something else you know ukulele was another game yeah. from the last few years that was trying to be banjo kazooie at the probably direct expense of having a unique individual identity but you know i think that was kind of what the fans wanted and so I, i've seen arguments on both sides what do you where do you stand on this um to to be a fence sitter i'm very much a, uh it's a case-by-case basis yeah, i think yeah. um 
I think Axiom Verge gets away with it just because of the sheer level of execution. And I think that's where I draw the line is if you're going to draw references to the greats, if you're going to draw that comparison, you better be damn good. Like, you better be of a certain quality. And I think Axiom Verge reaches that quality where it gets away with being a heavy homage. But, you know... You know, I, I like the other other way. Like, I like Hollow Knight kind of building on the foundations of influences and, and doing something different. So I think, yeah, uh, just to sum up, I think um, if you're going to do this, uh, do it really, really well, because I think your flaws are going to be magnified tenfold when mm. people can compare you to something. Like, Hollow, Hollow Knight, I think, can get away with a bit more just because of the, the ways in which it's original. But if you're making that direct comparison to Super Metroid, your, your any flaw, any tiny little thing that's out of place is going to be magnified in a way that it wouldn't be otherwise if you were doing something a bit more original. That's a good point. You know, I think that the discouragement of, uh, of cloned games, as they're sometimes called, uh, you know, the, the term that we use sometimes, doom clones back in the day, uh, to talk about pretty much all first-person shooters. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a kind of a pejorative, um, kind of a negative association with coming out with something that is too similar to something else because it's like, oh, why don't you come up with your own ideas? But I mean, really, sometimes the games that lead to a genre finding its feet come in those very close copies that just change one or two little things. Mm. Sometimes all you really want is just more of a good experience that you have. And sometimes just it going through somebody else's filter is enough to to mix it up and to bring some really interesting new elements to the table. Yeah. So I, I tend not to mind games that are of the clone nature, for lack of a better term. You see that all the time in uh, puzzle games. You know, there's, there's tons of match three games that are, you know, just barely different than one another. There's a lot of, uh, you know, clones again, so to speak of, Breakout or Arkanoid or whichever one <laughs> ended up coming first. Um, there's a lot of games that you know, reference back to Tetris. And uh, especially I've been going through quite a few games that are riffs on Picross or, uh, you know, whatever that style of game is called in its original iteration. Um, and then, of course, lots of uh, takes on crossword puzzles and number games and Sudoku. And so, you know, it's it, I think it's interesting to see it's kind of close, but not exactly the same um, iterations of these kind of classic uh, archetypes. So I don't know. Yeah. It's room for and, both. And, and, <laughs> and I think because um, Mark Brown did, I, I forget the title of the video, but it was about Axiom Verge. Mm -hmm. um, he did a, did a video about basically what um, Axiom Verge shows what it demonstrates that Metroidvanias have lost um, uh, post Super Metroid, and I think when when you're talking about revisiting, um, you know, making clones or making copies of games, it can actually serve as a useful barometer of how much has changed since this hmm. game came out, but also how much we've lost. Because he said one of the things that Metroidvanias introduced post Super Metroid are waypoints, are arrows pointing you in the direction mm. that you need to go. And neither Hollow Knight or Axiom Verge have waypoints or arrows pointing you where to go. 
and he said that's good because it re- it returns the medium the that sorry medium uh, the genre back to um, feeling mysterious feeling. Uh, scary feeling like you're actually exploring an environment rather than just following a line through a an open environment i don't have a problem with this uh, like with everything i think it comes down to craft like if you can if you've got the chops then you can get away with it well i've uh, i've talked quite a bit lately on social media about how frustrated i was to get lost in uh Hollow Knight. I won't double down <laughs> on that here because I actually just talked about that on Playwright as well. But, um, you know, the lack of waypoints sometimes, they can present problems with uh, when it comes to pacing. But I do like that, uh, that experience of finding something yourself mm. and wandering in a direction and not knowing if it's where you're supposed to go and finding yourself in a room with a bunch of enemies you're not sure if you can defeat just yet. I don't know. It's like you're having your own adventure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyways, let's move on to a very different style of game with a, I don't know, surprisingly kind of similar atmosphere, in a way. Uh, a little cuter, though. This comes from Botanicula. Not sure exactly what the preferred pronunciation is as of that, uh, but this comes from Amanated Design. They do some really great minimalist point-and-click adventure games. Abstract, nonsensical, hand-painted backgrounds, and everything is a little, like, that mixed between gross and cute that you get sometimes. Uh, they're oftentimes very like deeply embedded in nature. Um, Botanicula, you play... I'm not sure, actually. You're either like little bugs or like little sentient pieces of like pollen or something as you're climbing around these plants and interacting with other insects. And um, all throughout has these really cool pieces of music that are very atmospheric. They're very, uh, very experimental. They're not really grounded in tunes, necessarily. Uh, this is really what Amanita designed us best, and oftentimes in their games, the music is diegetic or composed at least, or um, I should say reinforced by diegetic elements, um, oftentimes dropping in and dropping out as you solve the puzzles. And so there's lots of layers to their music. There's lots of discordant elements, which is something that I tend to be really into when it's uh, when it comes to music. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I just find it to be very, uh, very intriguing. It, it kind of gets my mind working in a way that not a lot of other music does. So this is a piece of music called Bunky by DVA, composed for Botanicula. It's a strange one, but uh, I like it. Josh, when you've appeared on Sound of Play in the past, I've noticed, and I think I've, uh, I've noted this in previous appearances of yours, that you tend to pick songs that are more atmospheric um, and less tune-driven, than uh, a lot of other contributors that we have. Is this something that you would say is a fair assessment of your musical tastes, or is it just coincidence? It it really depends, because I I would say that a lot of the tracks I've picked for this issue Mm -hmm. are quite um, heavy on melody. I think back to the Halloween episode we did, a lot of what I think of as great horror music is kind of more kind of under the skin, kind of just slowly, slowly building that tension, and that is more atmospheric. I think about um, my favourite track from Fez is Death. There's not a heavy focus on melody in that track. It is much more about just feeling threatened and oppressed by that track. 
I don't know what what conclusion I'm coming to here. I think I like all types of music, but um, if I veered more towards atmospheric music uh, with your issues uh, of sound of play, it may be just that I'm playing to your tastes. I think we had this, um, not quite a discussion, because there was a little bit less honest conversation going on <laughs> in, uh, in one of our past Halloween episodes, um, but you had brought into the mix the uh, Blood Starved Beast theme from Bloodborne yeah, and had referenced that you prefer that piece of music to the more melody driven uh, cleric beast. And of course yeah. that's a, uh, these are both horror pieces of music. Uh, and so I just, I, I don't know, that always stuck with me for some reason. It's like an interesting divergence since blood starved beast is more of a, uh, not meandering song, but a piece of music that doesn't like ground itself in a clear lead line as much as yeah. um, cleric beast. I think that's entirely informed by the kind of game that Bloodborne is mm -hmm. and the kind of music that I'm expecting from a game like Bloodborne because Bloodborne is so horror-themed that I am going to naturally be drawn to the stuff that I feel is more horrific. And Bloodstarved Beast's track is just, for me, like, that's a classic piece. Like, it's Jaws. Like, that that's what that music is. <laughs> it's a repetitive theme that plays over and over again until the monster gets you, um, essentially. And that, that to me, is what horror is. It's like the, the, that building of tension through music. Um, whereas the Cleric Beast, it, that is oppressive, that is threatening, and there is definitely horror theming there. But there's, I don't know, there's more kind of like fantasy epic battle-ness to yeah, it. I'm not, yeah. I'm not describing that particularly well, but like it feels more like an operatic battle mm -hmm. between two uh, mythic forces, whereas Bloodstarved Beast is just like, this monster's going to kill you. Uh, it's <laughs> definitely going to kill you, so good luck. Well, let's get to Bunky from Botanicula. It has a kind of creepiness to it almost. Like something that's not composed by humans, it feels more natural or like the sounds that you would hear just walking down a street. You know, elements that are in the same space by coincidence rather than by sheer creative force. <laughs> I guess it's a way to put it, but mm. uh, I, I really like it. It's interesting. Yeah, everyone, uh, listeners, let me know what you think. This is Bunky from Botanicula. <laughs> Thank you. 
Our next track is a request from the forum. This comes from Magician Arcana, who says, I'd like to request the Hallowed Halls of Heralded Heroes from Armacrog. When I first heard this, I recognized Terry Scott Taylor's quirky style immediately. The way he mumbles lyrics or sometimes sings in gibberish always makes me chuckle. Yeah, thanks for requesting this one. This one is a lot of fun. This is a proper song, as we talked about in one of our Sound of Play uh, specials recently, in which we featured songs with lyrics. This is one of those. This is a song that was written um, by Terry Scott Taylor, as mentioned, uh, for Armicrog, a weird claymation point-and-click adventure game that came out somewhat recently. I reviewed it on Canon Rinse. I reviewed the Xbox One version, uh, which is maybe not the best way to experience a point-and-click adventure, but there we are. I, I thought that it had its moments, but I had some problems with uh, with the pacing as uh, point-and-click sometimes run into. It's a proper old-school point-and-click, um, something that, that gives you very little help, and the uh, puzzles are oftentimes um, very veiled in what they're even asking of you. <laughs> Um, which is fine. I, I really like the old Monkey Island games, but I feel like those ones had a little bit more direct logic guiding there. At least looking back afterwards, you can say like, oh, okay, yeah, I understand now what it was asking of me. Anyways, uh, this piece of music I also found to be <laughs> very, very funny. It's like a real warm hug of a song, and it's uh, written for the Kickstarter backers who backed at a certain level. Oh. Um, They even call that out in the song. It's a Kickstarter song. Uh, So yeah, it's just a a song with these, with these folks name in it. (laughs) Um, And oftentimes they're, they're kind of making, uh, making jokes based on the, the way that the names sound, uh, making cute little rhymes or, or wordplay with the names. And it's, it's just a, it reminds me of the type of music that you would get in like um, kids tapes, uh, tapes yeah. made for like listening in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for kids. Um, yeah. Uh, Josh, what kind of feelings does this piece of music bring up in you? It makes me, like similar to you, it, make, it reminds me of children's TV from back in the 90s, but yeah. not like, when I say children's TV, some of you might be thinking of X-Men, the animated series, or Batman or something like that. I mean like young children like um cbb's level which means nothing to american american listeners but means everything to people in the uk <laughs> like I, i'm imagining like puppets and um and uh, grown adults trying uh, trying their best to hide the shame that they're on on a tv show like that uh interacting with puppets um that kind of, it, fe- it feels like the kind of song that would be uh sung on those kind of shows like slightly like a lot of those shows, I don't know if this was the case in the US, but in the Brit in Britain at least, a lot of those shows had like this weird kind of I don't know surrealist uh, bent to them. Like mm-hmm. they were kind of trying slightly to be like Monty Python, but like appropriate for five year olds. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's what this song reminds me of. Is that just kind of weird era in children's TV? Um, I'm sorry I can't think of any examples to pull from. They kind of all blend into my head. I'm pretty sure there applies to this issue. You'll get tons of examples of uh, shows from that era. But yeah, very, very evocative of um, the kind of stuff I watched when I was four. Yeah, that's a good point uh, about it being kind of 
surreal in a way because children's music is usually like over enunciated because they want the words to be very clear. I don't know if it's uh, part of the like educational aspect of like wanting to teach children to speak well or whether it's they want kids to learn the music so they can sing along. But, you know, it, it is usually very clear. And I think the mumbly nature of this song brings a uh, he kind of like lazily slurs from word to word uh, which yeah. gives it a lot of character but it, it I guess it does kind of slightly deviate it from what you'd be expecting if you were going into this listening out for a uh, piece of of children's music I don't know it's interesting this is the Hallowed Halls of Heralded Heroes by Terry Scott Taylor from Army Krog. You want a song with your name, and it's your name, and it's your name, and a kickstart song with your name, and a sorrow chill song with your name. Hope you like a song with your name, and it, I'm holding it on to make your day with it. It'll wrong you, it'll stay with it. If you play guitar, you can play with it. How about a roll the drum for Ether 101, and Timor nicknamed Lemo? Who's behind that door? Why, it's Ingrid Rimful. Well, I'll be clickety-clackety, it's also Jennifer Clicky. I say howdy howdy Anthony Rubin and ship a hoy man is Martin Troy. Now Remy Carn sure loves to spin them yarns. And Paul Keeler, he's a potato peeler. Yeah. There's your song with your name and your name and name. Wrote you a song with your name. Wrote you a song with your name. Thanks everybody. So we're gonna blend now into a very different piece of music. This comes from the uh, one of the Witcher 3 DLCs, which we have previously talked about on on Canon Rinse in issue number 300. You can go back to that and check out everyone's opinion on it. Of course, Josh Garrity here has notoriously uh, been very disappointed in all Witcher 3 content. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad yeah. that you've kept an open mind about this. Um, but maybe someday <laughs> we can talk you into what I think are actually pretty good pieces of content. But, mm. you know, maybe someday we'll break through. And scene. Um, <laughs> no, as as everyone knows, um, I, I, I love Hearts of Stone, especially. Um, I love Blood and Wine as well. Um, but... Um, and you know, I, I think Blood and Wine uh, is probably the better value proposition if we're just talking in terms of bang for your buck. Like, there's a, pretty much a whole another game's worth of content with Blood and Wine. Um, but Hearts of Stone is like special to me. I think it's more focused, and I think um, the writing is amongst the strongest I've I've seen in any video game I've played. Um, stronger even than the the main campaign of The Witcher 3. I I just think Hearts of Stone is a phenomenal Mm -hmm. piece of DLC. And one of the reasons why I love Hearts of Stone so much is um, uh, a character um, called Gauntro Dim, um, who uh, I won't go into kind of spoilery details with him, but he's essentially the... Uh, antagonist figure of the DLC and casts quite a long and dark shadow over proceedings um, and just one of the best vocal performances uh, I've 
I've heard in a, in a game. And one of my favorite things in composing is leitmotifs. Um, uh, one of the reasons why I love the Lord, Lord of the Rings soundtracks and one of the reasons why I loathe the Hobbit soundtrack um, is the use of leitmotifs. Um, the, uh, in, in Lord of the Rings, there was a lot of attention paid with the score to making sure that certain characters have certain themes, certain threats have certain themes, and to only ever play those music, those pieces of music when they are directly associated with those characters or with those threats to the heroes. Uh, one of the reasons why I hate the Hobbit soundtrack is that they just use those themes when, whenever the hell they want. Let's just use the Ring Ray theme in this heroic moment rather than actually uh, pay any attention to the importance and significance mm. of that leitmotif. Uh, sorry, that's a whole nother conversation, but I hate <laughs> the Hobbit soundtrack. Um, anyway, um, what I love about Hearts of Stone is um, the use of Gontro Dim's leitmotif. Um, it appears um, uh, at several points um, throughout the game and uh, throughout several points in the actual soundtrack for Hearts of Stone itself. But this is my favorite um, use of it. Um, it's when Gontro Dim and, and Geralt meet in a pub and have a chat about the nature of Gauntero Dim and and what you know the nature of his influence and power. You probably figured out who Gauntero Dim is by this point, but uh, it basically underlines it in this scene. I I just love this piece of music. I I think um, it communicate. It, it's basically like a child's um, rhyme. Uh, the first time you hear it in the context of the game um, is children singing um, this rhyme about Gauntro Dim, but then they just use it. They just pepper it throughout the game. But this particular use of it is so threatening and scary, and yet it still has that kind of. Um, Freddy Krueger lullaby kind of thing going on um, that really emphasizes the kind of villainous um, nature of the character. I just love it. I think the soundtrack for Witcher 3 is great uh, in general, but mm -hmm. this kind of stands out as one of the, my favorite, more atmospheric, more kind of character related uh, themes of music. So this is the track is called. Um, What's uh, whatsoever a man soweth? Um, it's composed by Marcin Prybojevich. Um, sorry if I've butchered that uh, pronunciation. Uh, and it's from The Witcher Three: Wild Hunt, Hearts of Stone.
And now you uh, you mentioned in uh, when you were introing that that track that uh, Gontaro Dim is the antagonist of the DLC. It's been a little while since I've played it, and I was just thinking back. I remember that uh, the DLC story is essentially kind of a conflict between two characters, and I'm not remembering if you choose a certain path, um, if you side with one of the characters, if you're ever put in direct conflict with Gonter or whether he could be like technically somebody who's kind of on your side, so to speak, uh, <laughs> you know, if you choose to agree with his point of view on things, um, is, is he always an antagonist for every character or is it more of a like perspective thing? I consider him the antagonist of the story, but yeah, you are enough. right. There are, there are choices that can be taken where you, you two part on good terms. For me, like antagonist is more than just somebody you fight against. He mm-hmm. he is the character. He or she, sorry, he or she is the character by which everything in the events of the story are changed. Like their presence mm, okay, is yeah. what causes conflict. Their presence is what has caused the change in the world or the character or anything like that. There is no mistaking that Gontro Dim is the force that forces characters into the situations that they're in in the story of Heart to Stone. So by that definition, which by no means is the definitive definition of antagonist, Mm -hmm. but by my own prescribed definition, uh, he falls into that camp. Uh, And this is like an example of why this is such an interesting story is that, you know, there are these subtleties and it's not just a... uh, it's not just a story of good versus evil. It is no. evil versus worse evil <laughs> yeah, oftentimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. Anyways, let's, let's move on again to a very different style of game. This is another request from the forum. This comes from Scrussel from the forum who says, I'd like to submit Mists in the Mire by Frida Johansson and Henrik Oya from Unravel. Unravel is a game I let slip by when it first came out. While I had some interest, I lost that when the game seemed to get somewhat lukewarm response from critics. I became interested again, actually, through hearing the soundtrack on this podcast, and I'm extremely glad I finally gave it a go. I found it to be an amazing and powerful experience that really spoke to me, perhaps more than with many reviewers. That's in no small part thanks to the soundtrack, which is just stunning. There's a short documentary on YouTube where the creators of the game talk about the soundtrack and how it's supposed to invoke a feeling of Vermod, which they describe as being a beautiful melancholy, which I think they absolutely nailed. Yes, of course, this is the mists, the mist in the mire from Unravel. The entire game takes place, I guess you could argue, <laughs> in the memories of a, a family or a member of a family going back to significant places in their life, um, even though it's set in Uh, in Northern Europe somewhere. And a lot of the environments are very firmly rooted in the places that the uh, development team uh, would go when they were younger. Uh, A lot of them had a very familiar feeling to me because I guess the environment is very similar to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I've spent most of my life now in Washington state and up in Canada and it's, um, you know, it, it's very similar as far as the types of plants that you would see in the forest, the types of, uh, of beaches that you would see, not the sandy beaches, but the rocky beaches. Um, so it, it was fun for me as well to go through these places and have that frame of reference as well. 
Did you find um, that these, that the types of environments uh, recreated in this game also reflected the environments that you were familiar with? Or, or did you have a, or was this more of a, um, not a flight of fancy, it's not nothing fanciful about this, but was this more of a vacation from what you usually see in your day-to-day life? Um, I'm going to confess now that I haven't played Unravel. No problem. <laughs> so, um, we can move but, yeah, right past that thing. No, I, I, will, I will just mention that um, I, I, I am. It's one. It's one game that has been on my list for a while, and mm-hmm. I have seen some of the environments, and they do look beautiful. Um, I'm not sure if they evoke uh, the British countryside, though, which is mm-hmm. much more drab and grey. <laughs> Fair enough. I actually just finished Unravel uh, about a month or two ago, probably. Yeah, I don't know. I I had a good enough time with it. (laughs) Mm. Uh, This doesn't need to be a review show, but it's one that I am happy that I had the chance to play, but I don't feel like I necessarily like learned anything from the experience. Uh, It's one of those games where it's just a a pleasant time with it uh, without being anything necessarily earth shaking. But sometimes that's kind of all that you want. Just a yeah. Uh, just a, a nice, pleasant experience. And uh, the soundtrack does definitely bolster that. Um, let's listen to a fairly long and uh, nice and dynamic piece from Unravel. This is The Mist in the Mire.
next piece of music that we're going to be listening to is another piece from a game that I actually requested another piece of music from, a few sounds of playback, and uh, I don't see get mentioned in a lot of other places. I think it's one that people would recognize by sight, um, but probably have not played themselves. Uh, This is from Tiny and Big Grandpa's Leftovers. It's a very strange indie game. It's one of those that's been around forever, it seems. But what I like about the soundtrack in particular is that it feels like a very carefully curated selection of weird indie hipster music, which, I don't know, I kind of like. It's, It's very eclectic. It's very different from track to track. It's, um... It's potentially unlike the type of music that um, that you hear out in the world uh, when you're just kind of, I don't know, existing in that common space. There's a certain kind of eclectic nature to it that I think gives it a, a really cool energy. Yeah. This is Cold Reader by the Voodoo Trombone Quartet. Josh, what does this, uh, what does this strike you as? I have a hard time putting this type of music into words. It's a weird mis- uh, mismatch of loads of different genres and styles, um, but I feel like I feel like because I have actually played um, Tiny and Big uh, Grandpa's oh, uh, leftovers, uh, I feel like it perfectly evokes the tone of the game and the art direction of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it needs to be this kind of weird mixture of uh, different styles of music um because the game feels like a weird um combination of ideas and like it's it's kind of like a a, for those who don't know like a lot of the mechanics of this game are about destroying the environment but it's also kind of like a puzzle platformer at the same time Mm -hmm. so it's like uh one part red faction gorilla and one part super mario 64 and it's um and the art style feels like um something from something uh like nickelodeon would have funded uh yeah like like, um (laughs) Uh, Red and Stimpy or um, Rocco's Modern Life or something like that. It has that kind of like, this is for kids, but it's not really for kids uh, Mm -hmm. type of uh, art style. Um, I I like that. I really like the soundtrack. I I think it's got a lot of personality. um, And um, yeah, I think it perfectly suits the the game. I, I, yeah, I like this. This piece of music feels like it is evoking. I don't have the right words for it, but like a folk type music, uh, like something that would have been brought from the old country, so to speak. Uh, You know, like it's like it's going back to not classical music, but like the types of music that, you know, your family would have been playing on instruments around campfires hundreds of years ago. And uh, yeah, there's something that and it recontextualizes that into the context of modern music, which is really cool there it feels like a lot of of history to this um probably reinforced by the kind of crackly recording it makes it sound like it was recorded on aged technology as well um i don't know this feels a little hipstery and up my own ass so let's just let the music talk for itself this is cold reader by the voodoo trombone quartet from tiny and big grandpa's leftovers
next request comes from Twitter. So don't expect a long description. This comes from Ashton Herman, who says, Punchy percussive glory in song. Very good. This is from Divinity Original Sin 2, a game that I've been uh, going through recently. Uh, actually, I got to circle back to that. Uh, I got distracted with some other stuff. And uh, yeah, I've been, uh, I, I'm off the first island and I'm on a ship sailing for the next location. And so I'm excited to see where the story goes next. It's my first experience with CRPGs, which is something I was very curious and intimidated by for a long time. But with the high praise that Divinity Original Sin 2, you know, I have to say the full title every time because there's another game in the series called Divinity 2. So I feel like colloquially people will know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But uh, it's just, you know, it's incorrect. It's just how you have to like specify Doom 2016 or uh, instead yeah. of uh you know it's kind of just call it just crazy. call it just call it dos 2 dos 2 there you go <laughs> that's right divinity original sin 2 dos 2 features uh, a lot of um a lot of lay motifs as we were talking about earlier a lot of very strong themes uh that reoccur throughout the entire game one of my favorite things about it is in the character creator at the beginning of the game you can choose between pre-constructed characters uh, that have stories written for them. And as you're going through the story, you can kind of engage with their story moments. Um, You can even kind of customize the way that those pre-constructed characters look in certain ways, which is really cool. Um, Make them your own in a way. Uh, Or you can choose to create your character from scratch uh, from a series of species of uh, you can be skeleton versions of all those species as well, which is fun. I like that. But in the character creator, you can choose a an instrument that represents your character, almost like a Peter and the Wolf kind of way, and it will like weave that instrument into the musical mix at like important character points. In that is uh, so cool. Yeah, that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never really seen that done before. Don't I mean it is extra work to record the extra instruments, but it's not like that much more difficult because you are recording multiple instrumental parts anyways. And so um, you know, to just give the player a choice of uh it, it makes that more feel more personal, makes it feel like, you know, your individual story, and it really makes you listen out for it in a way that you might not consciously be listening for it if you know, you aren't already like super musically inclined. Um, it's almost like a way of like teaching people how to uh, listen for lay motifs in in works of fiction. I, I don't know. It is super cool. I'm, I'm really into that kind of thing. So um, this is the theme of one of the characters. He's kind of a lone wolf. Uh, he reminds me of like um, Aragon. Is that the, the king from Lord of the Rings? I know that there's yeah. a few. Okay. There's a few names that sound similar, and so I, I always try to not mix up the the characters. But kind of this like this very like powerful being that you can tell has a more noble history than he's letting on when you meet him. Unfortunately for me, he died in one of the encounters uh, very early on in the game when I was trying to free him from some of the guards that were keeping him. Uh, luckily, you can only keep three companions uh, through the game. I think you can kind of swap them in and out, but 
uh, for my purposes, I want to see the stories of the three companions that I've chosen through. Um, and there are five possible companions, I believe, um, that have stories. And so, you know, he died for me very early on. So I thought, you know, whatever, I'm just going to go through the game with three other people and uh, see their stories. And then I can circle back later on a second playthrough and see his story. Uh, but yeah, anyways, that's that's neither here nor there. Uh, Josh, have you ever uh, played anything in the CRPG genre before? Um, I've I've made several attempts um, at uh, playing CRPGs um, and have never really had much success, if I'm being honest. I tried to play the original Divinity, Original Sin, uh, wow, that was a that was a bad sentence. Um, but anyway, um, and I, I kind of bounced off, not because of mechanics. Weirdly, I just got really put off by the um, storytelling, which I hear is a lot better in Original Sin Two. Um, and a lot of people I trust have said, "Yeah, I I bounced off the first one as well, but I'm really into the the second one." So I, I'm kind of willing to give this a second shot. And and also recently. Um, though I need to go back to it, I did get a decent chunk of the way through Pillars of Eternity, mm-hmm. um, but primarily because I think Chris Avalone is the lead writer on that game, and I think Chris Avalone is one of uh, my favorite writers in games, and I, I think I was immediately drawn in in a way that I wasn't with uh, Original Sin. Um, but like my, my Steam backlog is just like full of CRPGs that I've told myself that I'll get to someday, uh, but never have, like um, Planescape Torment and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Fallout 2 and so many others. So yeah, not a genre that I'm less familiar than, with the genre than I want to be. Um, but uh, yeah, Divinity Original Sin 2 is definitely on my radar. I guess we should probably define, uh, because it is a little bit of a kind of an obscure term, a CRPG. You know, there's all sorts of different types of RPGs and people will kind of break them down differently. Western RPGs, action RPGs, JRPGs, uh, CRPGs, I am pretty confident stands for computer RPG. I might be wrong about that, actually, but uh, I, I think that's where it comes from. <laughs> yeah, I uh, think so. Because I think this this genre kind of emerged and is still most prevalent on PCs. They're typically isometric, viewed from above games, like you would see in a typical, uh, like a real-time strategy game, like a Warcraft yeah. 3 or something like that. Uh, but they're they're mostly known for their storytelling because... They are based on, uh, oftentimes, on Dungeons and Dragons rule sets and the typical D&D style of storytelling. Um, you'll see that with a, a Planescape Torment being probably the most famous and probably, like, overall, uh, again, I don't want to make huge sweeping generalizations here, but probably overall the most well-regarded game of the genre, if I can be so bold as to say. Um but uh, there's been a a nice resurgence of these games recently. Uh, I think that they kind of fell out of favor for a little bit. They never completely disappeared. Um, you can see with uh, Neverwinter Nights, I believe, would be considered a part of the genre. Again, it's all kind of blurry borders. Um, yeah. You m- might even be able to make an argument for Diablo, but maybe not. Uh <laughs> Anyways. I think I think I think there's a case for Dragon Age as well. Like oh, certainly okay. yeah, the, yeah, the first sure. Dragon Age is definitely mm-hmm. um, 
heavily influenced by CRPGs. Yeah, yeah. And so you can kind of see that transition into the Mass Effect style of, uh, of modern action RPGs and, and stuff there. So yeah, again, blurry borders as always. But yeah, there's been a nice modern revival of uh, Torment Tides of the Numenera. Uh, there's uh, Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2, the Pillars of Eternity games, which I believe there's a either a sequel or an expansion coming out later this year. Uh, maybe it's already come out on PC and is uh, upcoming on consoles. Uh, some combination of those facts. I think it got kind of a kind of a bad rap before for being very text heavy and unapproachable. Not because it's text heavy. You know, we're we're fine with doing some reading when we need to, of course. But a lot of its systems, due to its D and D roots, are very very obscure, very heavy, relying on numbers and stats and dice rolls and everything like that and i think that that put off a lot of players who see that as being a a, a very complicated genre of games and i think the uh, the newer games in this genre make a good effort of rolling back some of the complicated aspects of this kind of hiding it behind the curtain when it can be and uh just making it more accessible all around and uh yeah they've been uh, making a nice little comeback which is cool to see i'm really excited to get further into Divinity Original Sin 2. I've really enjoyed my time with it so far. And um, it's, in that particular game, has multiplayer as well. You can play online with somebody else and experience your story with them. You can create your own custom scenarios. There's a lot of, uh, there's some really good legs on that game. If uh, if it's something that you like, it can be a very, um, be a very valuable purchase, one that you can go back to time and time again, I'm sure, and play through all sorts of different campaigns. Uh, anyways, let's listen to a piece of music from this. I love this song and how it evolves and grows to be more and more epic throughout. This is Mead Golden Blood, Ithan's theme by Borislav Slavov from Divinity Original Sin 2.
next piece of music that I'm requesting. This is our penultimate track today. It's a little bit less like interesting and obscure than the other pieces of music that we listen to today. I think it's one that most people will know, be very familiar with, but I was surprised that it had never been requested on Sound of Play before. So, um, at least not under the name that I know it under. Uh, I did a, a search in our spreadsheet, uh, so apologies if that has been uh, requested under a different name. Uh, but this is the main theme. This is Super Bell Hill from Super Mario 3D World by Mahito Yokota. I just really love this piece of music. <laughs> it's one that uh, that immediately stuck out to me. You know, there's um, uh, Mario music has been legendary forever, but you know, there's a few classic themes in its um, in its history, and I'm still surprised that you know every single game they're able to create music that feels like it's been a part of Mario's history forever. You know, Jump Up Superstar, I. I really love from uh, last year's Super Mario Odyssey, and it feels like it feels genuinely like a an intrinsic part of Mario's history, even though it's brand new and Mario has been around since the 1980s. You know, it's it's amazing how and it must be super intimidating to try to write music for a series that has such a strong musical identity already, and to say like, you know, aren't people going to be humming this song in 20 years time like they are the original super mario bros theme um and uh i i think that that's i think that that's the case with this song it's it's a very strong very whimsical very upbeat piece of music it's a it's a little jazzy it's a little sassy Josh, how do you get on with uh, Super Mario 3D World? Um, I, I love 3D World. Um, I, I think um, I, I honestly think 3D World is one of the strongest um, entries in mm. the Mario series. I think it, it gets forgotten because it was on the Wii U, and so few people bought a Wii U, and thus any games that were released on there don't get the same level of attention as stuff that comes out for the Switch or even the console before that, the Wii. Um, but I, I, I would, I would rate three, three D World alongside um, the Galaxy games in terms of my personal appreciation um, for it, and and the soundtrack is a big reason why I think um, it doesn't have. So one of the things I love about the Galaxy games is that those soundtracks have like a majestic quality to them. So they, they express the same joy and fun that every Mario game has done. Um, but there's some, there's something about having that space theming that they that I think they just decided to add like a scale and and a majesty to the soundtrack to those galaxy games that 3D World doesn't have but it replaces it with something a bit more playful and a bit more kind of cheeky if that makes mm-hmm. sense like it it feels more um like it's a playground like come and come come and play with us in our uh you know obstacle course of fun like it's it is more kind of uh grounded and um and and more kind of childlike than than, than the the galaxy soundtracks are um and i and i i really appreciate that that quality um to the soundtrack so yeah i i a big fan here feels like the kind of game and music that we would have in the modern age if we had just kept on making arcade games and hadn't ever graduated not graduated as in like a a progression of one is better than the other but you know moved into making other types of games um there's a certain like it feels very 
contained. It feels very tune driven in the way that old NES music was, uh, which again, I, uh, we've talked about earlier in this show, 3d world. I mean, it has to be headed for switch at some point, right? Like that game yeah. does deserve a diff- a second chance. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, since, um, actually as of the time of recording just a couple of days ago, uh, captain toad, uh, what was his not awesome adventure? That's the Captain Spirit. What is Captain Toad Treasure Tracker? Cap- That's the yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Captain Toad's Treasure Tracker uh, just came out on the Nintendo Switch. And that one, I believe, is uh, running on the same engine because the Captain Toad levels were originally built in uh, in Super Mario 3D World as little uh, little side diversions before given their own spinoff uh, full of these, these little Captain Toad um, adventures. Uh, so yeah, I'd imagine most of the work seems to be already done. <laughs> That's never the case when it comes to video games. I'm being uh, I'm being a little facetious there, but um, but yeah, if if they're gonna put all that work into you know taking Captain Toad, which I love that game, but yeah. like it's <laughs> Captain Toad doesn't draw the same crowd as uh, Mario does, and if they're willing to put all that work into Captain Toad, they must be working on this uh, uh, and planning to release it at some point. Speaking of uh, Captain Toad, <laughs> just a funny little thing that I saw on uh, Reddit that I thought that I would mention. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a Reddit frequenter, but I uh, I spend, you know, a, a little bit of time in the mornings at work uh, as I work at Nintendo on the Nintendo Switch Reddit just to kind of browse through and make sure that nothing is burning down. That's often a good good place to look just to make sure that uh, people aren't having trouble downloading one of our games or something uh, hasn't gone live earlier than we had intended. So, you know, just to keep my eye on things, I spend quite a bit of time on the our Nintendo Switch. Um, but they, uh, somebody pointed out in uh, Captain Toad on the Switch that if you scan in an amiibo, it, it does that little like rainbow ripple, uh, that visual effect of an amiibo being scanned in on the screen uh, based on the location of the Amiibo scanner on the Wii U gamepad, and they never updated it to the new location of the uh, Amiibo scanner on the Switch. <laughs> so if you uh, scan it in in handheld mode, the visual effect will be on the wrong side of the screen, which is <laughs> just kind of funny, but uh, <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, let's listen to a piece of music from Super Mario 3D World. This is Super Bell Hill. I think you'll all know it.
one piece of music left to listen to today. But before we listen to that, we'd like to remind everyone to go over to our forum at kinnerinscom forum, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter as one of our requesties did today. And uh, that is at Kinnerins. You can request your favorite pieces of music from video games from either of those uh, locations, and we will play it on a future Sound of Play. We've got, we've got quite a list, but we draw from old requests, we draw from new requests, so don't be discouraged by that. It might pop up on the very next show, you never know. I would like to thank Josh and uh, all of our community contributors for their uh, contributions to the show today, as always. And uh, Josh, uh, let's let's go into this final piece of music. This is uh, from a very recent game uh, another mm. another we're talking about switch a best on switch game as a lot of people call them now what was your history with this game was this one that you were anticipating beforehand or was it one that uh, you discovered along with uh, a lot of other people it seems along with the uh, the reviews the very strong reviews that it received at the time of its release i actually spotted this um a long while ago, um, actually kind of part of my job. Um, uh, part of my job, mm-hmm. I, I discovered this game. Um, uh, unfortunately, nothing nothing came to fruition on that side of things. But um, I was, I, I kept an eye on it because um, I thought it was special. Like, I, I was convinced that when this game came, came out, it was going to be brilliant, um, mm-hmm. just based on what I saw of it. Um and uh, that turned out to be the case. Um, uh, I uh, I love this game. Uh, the game we're talking about is Celeste, um, which is developed by Matt Makes Games, um, and it's currently my favorite game released this year. Um, mm, wow! Like I think it's uh, I think it's an incredible piece of work, um, honestly. Uh, and if you have a switch, like you need to play this game. Um, I, I, I rate, you know, personally, I, I would rate this as one of uh, the best 2D platformers I've played. Um, I, I just absolutely adore it. Um, it's not just that it's um, a great 2D platformer. I think the way it combines um, uh, interactivity with strong theming. Um, mm-hmm. The game is, uh, I, I won't go into detail, but the game is about in- anxiety and dealing with anxiety and uh, the metaphor of scaling a mountain to overcome anxiety is just a particularly potent uh, piece of imagery. Um, and um, and the, uh, the this moment in particular, so the, the track I, I'm going to be uh, uh, presenting to all of you today is um uh, conv- uh, confronting myself and this is composed by lena rain who i think is one to watch um lena rain uh I-, I don't think she's done much in the way of video game soundtracks before this game um but this is an incredible piece of work um this is one of those moments in games where uh everything comes together um both gameplay, aesthetics, music, and storytelling all come together in a perfect way. Like uh, playing this sequence of this piece of music, like the the hairs on like I'm I'm I, I know people are going to cu- accuse me of uh, hyperbole with this, but like seriously, the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. Like it's it is 
an incredible piece of visual metaphor and theming. Um, and I mean, the track is called Confronting Myself and uh, the game is about anxiety. So I'll let you kind of draw your own. If you haven't played the game, I'm sure you can at least imagine what this scenario is about. Um, but um, the use of retro music combined with the chorus in the background um, really, because up until this point, there haven't really been any vocals in the game. It has just been this this kind of fantastic, but, you know, retro theme soundtrack. The, the, the adding of the chorus kind of um, elevates this moment. It makes it feel like um, something more is happening, something more important is happening than at any other point in the game. Um, and the way... Um, you won't get a sense of this just listening to the track because it just it just plays as a normal track. But as you progress through this section of the game, the vocals actually start to distort more and more. You hear a bit of that in this track, but um, it's actually combined with what you're doing in the level um, in the actual game itself. So your your actions actually impact the the music itself and and. Um, the choir just gets more and more distorted mm. as you as you successfully uh, complete the tasks that you need to complete in this mm. level. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the the end result is probably my favourite moment in a game this year. Um, I just think it's a phenomenal piece of work. Um, so this is confronting myself by Lena Rain from Celeste. Uh, and once you've listened to this track, go out and buy Celeste and play it because it's incredible. <laughs> Agreed. I'm going to I'm going to throw a word out there and it sounds negative, but I think just like any other adjective that you could use to describe music, like any style of composition can be used. You can bring out the most positive aspects of it. I'm going to say that a lot of the music in Celeste feels like overproduced is the only way that I can think to describe it. Uh, It feels like there's a lot more layers and a lot more going on than um than feels almost comfortable to listen to which i think is intentional and is the right choice uh for a lot of the moments in the game uh there's a there's just a lot of um you know i i kind of get the same feeling from the uh shovel knight soundtrack which you uh you spoke very highly of in a very recent uh Kane and rinse issue about shovel knight uh, where you know just the amount of music of production of of grandiosity and kind of exceeds what you would be expecting of it like it kind of transcends your expectations of the style of music that it's trying to evoke this this old um chip yeah. style of music and it makes it feel modern and fresh and alive and natural and it it feels alive because it feels like it is straining against the constraints of the medium <laughs> which yeah, I, yeah. I love in music it feels like it's really pushing through a barrier uh, which is i guess yeah. what i mean by overproduced it feels like it's it's straining against everything that's asked of it and there's so much like drama and emotionality just in the way that it sounds aurally which i i don't know i love and this whole soundtrack i think plays that really well i think the Fez soundtrack has aspects of that. Um, I think Disaster Piece in general has kind of mastered the 
art of overproduction of music yeah. um, in, in yeah. all of his work. And, and Lena Rain again, seems to be uh, playing with a lot of those, uh, those same principles. So again, I, I don't mean to, to list that as a, a negative against the track. I think that it plays, it play, it, it plays that to its strengths. And uh, I don't know, it's a super interesting soundtrack. There's uh, the B sides, um, I think play even more into that. And uh, yeah, it's just very dramatic. I, I love the game as well. And I'm really happy that it exists. Yeah. Uh, so yes, confronting myself by Lena rain from Celeste. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.